Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. How well do you know the city or town or even neighborhood in which you live? It's easy to get caught up in national or international issues and miss the need next door. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled Proclaiming God in a Godless Context, which covers Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray for us. We'll jump into the book of Acts. Father, thanks for this time together. And Lord, we, we pray, oh God, that you would bless this time as we open your word that you would bless the reading and the teaching and the preaching of your, of your holy scriptures. Lord, that you would bless the time that we take at the end of this service to uh, take the Lord's table. May this be a sweet time, a rich time of worship to you, of communion with you. And oh God, would you come as we reflect and remember Pentecost, on this Pentecost Sunday, and thinking about that's when you poured out your spirit. Lord, would, would you pour out your spirit here in the sense of that you would, you would speak to us and give us ears to hear? Lord, would you soften hard hearts? Would you awaken dead hearts? And oh Lord, remove the veil that we may see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So we give this time to you. Ask that you would do that for your name, for your glory, we pray, amen. So one of mine and Rachel's favorite places to go is New York City. We've been able to go there several times over the years. Uh, The years that I was doing college ministry, we there for four or five straight years, every spring break, we would take a group of students up to the city and the majority of our trip would be spent on college campuses there in the city. We do Columbia, NYU, Queens College, so on and so forth. And we would go out on campus and try to just engage with college students, have spiritual conversations. If the opportunity presented itself, we'd share the gospel and try to connect them with one of the local churches and ministries. But we'd always leave time, at least a day or two, to just be tourists in the city. And so we were that. We were tourists. And I fell in love with New York for so many reasons. I I, I know not everyone loves New York. You go once and you go, I'll never go back. But for me, small town Alabama boy, something about big city concrete jungle was awesome. I don't know why, but I loved it. I love the lights and the sights and the sounds and the hustle and the bustle and the museums and and the shows and the restaurants and all the things that make New York, New York. I love riding the subway. I know, but I loved it. I loved being on the subway for long periods of time because I love people watching. And there is no better place in the world to people watch than the subways of New York City. It was awesome. I love riding in taxis in New York. There's something about thinking you're about to die that is just an incredible (laughs) adrenaline rush. And I loved it. Rachel would have her eyes closed the whole time. I am just like a kid in a candy shop. Come on, let's go. I wanna see how you don't hit these cars. I loved New York City. Now, here's the thing. The first several times that we went, I was so distracted by what I saw and what I experienced that I was not, even though I was on a quote unquote mission trip, 
I was not very attuned to the heart cries of the city. You know, it's so easy to get caught up in all the magnificence of the city, the lights and the sounds of Times Square, all of it, that you miss what's really going on beneath the surface. What's a heart cry? What's the heart cry of a city? Well, the heart cry of a city is, what are the expressions of this city that begin to reveal what the true longings of the people of this city are? Where, where is it that they've placed their hope? What is it that they say, uh, this is where we seek to find meaning and purpose and life and wholeness and peace? The first several times that I went, I was so busy and so distracted with the city, the lights, the glamour, that I missed that. But the last time we went, Rachel and I went just back in 2019, and we went for our wedding anniversary just for two or three nights. And because we had been able to go several times in the past, we, we weren't interested in all the stuff that you would normally be interested in. We tried to go to places that locals would go to. We tried to fit in, which is funny. We, went to, we tried to find restaurants in uh, neighborhoods that people visiting just didn't know about. And we began to try to visit places that would tell us a little bit more about the heart of the city. And ever, be it ever so small, I wanted to begin to study New York and to see New York through spiritual eyes, to begin to discover what are the heart cries of the city. We went to some of the cathedrals there just to try to get a feel for what is the spiritual, overarching spiritual climate of New York City. And as I, as I began to study a little bit more New York City, I began to see, wow, I'm not surprised by this, but this is a city absolutely submerged in idolatry. But New York City is on a grand scale what my city is on a smaller scale. Every city small or large, every single one is made up of the same reality, which is a broken people running to broken cisterns, trying to find what only the God of the universe can give. Every city has the same makeup, just different expressions of the same reality. Are you a student of your city? Now listen, I'm, I, Atlanta, yes. We're all tethered to Atlanta. Atlanta is the city that we're all connected to. But for where we're located, where this church is located in Metro Northeast Metro, Metro Atlanta, and we think about the 85% of the membership of Perimeter Church comes from 10 suburbs of Atlanta in this vicinity. Do you study your city? Are you a student of where you live? Are you continually trying to see with spiritual eyes, with a, with a keen spiritual vision, what are the heart cries of those who live around me? What are the expressions of my city that reveal where her hope lies? It doesn't matter how small it is or how big it is, the heart cries often are the same. To be a student of your city, 
To be a person who proclaims the excellencies of God in an increasingly godless context requires two things primarily. Here's the two things that, that we need. One, we need, as I just mentioned, keen spiritual eyes to see through the eyes of God. But we also need, secondly, we need a strong spiritual urge. What I mean by that is this. A a strong spiritual urge is really getting at a, a holy discontentment that things are not the way they should be that then fuels this holy discontentment, right? I wanna, I wanna zoom in on that word holy because you can be discontent and it be far from holy. Holy discontentment, spirit-led discontentment like we talked about last week that fuels within us the desire, the growing desire for gracious engagement with those who live around us in such a way that we would embody what God wants us to embody and longs for us to embody as his bride, as his church. Are we students of where we live? Now we, we launched, part of our vision we launched back in January was that we would launch City Impact. And then in each of these cities that we're talking about where 85% of the church membership comes from, that we would have a renewed focus on what does it look like to live out being the church in those places to have city impact where we live, kingdom impact where we live. And many of you have caught the vision and have jumped on board and are beginning to engage with the city impact team where you live. And if you haven't done that yet, I would encourage you to do so. Go to our website, look up where you live on our website and ask, hey, how can I get involved with my city impact? And the beginning place is is what we're gonna see in the text today. The beginning, the starting place is beginning to be a student of your city, an observer, a studier, because here's the reality. The reality is, is that, and I'm right here with you. This is my reality. I'm often way too busy or, and or I'm way too distracted to look with spiritual eyes and to develop a spiritual urge for my city. Paul models for us what this begins to look like. Now I wanna be careful because I wanna be, I said this last week, I wanna say it again. Paul's not Jesus. It's easy to start looking at a guy like Paul and being like, okay, he was something other than me. He's not, he was not. He described himself as the chief of sinners. He was plagued by the sinful nature just like we are. And I feel like a lot of times when I'm tempted to make Paul into something that he's not, I feel that the spirit is kind of whispering in my ear, you know, uh, I could use you in that same way. You could be filled with the spirit to the extent, like we talked about last week, that I do through you, in you and through you, what only I can do. And Paul modeled, we saw this last week, remember, just just quick recap. He modeled last week what it looks like to be someone that is so spirit-led that they surrender their rights. That they have every right to say, well, I'm free, and because of my freedom, I, I don't have to do blank. And he says, yeah, but I'll die to that for the sake of the gospel and for the unity of the church. He also modeled for us a spirit-led reality that, that re- resulted in a sensitivity to, to the spirit's leading that was profound. That the Spirit would lead us in such a way that we would be very 
in tune with where he's saying, don't go and go. And we'd follow quickly. And then he modeled for a spirit-led suffering. That on this side of heaven, before Jesus comes again or before we die and we're in his presence, this life will, if we follow the way of the kingdom that rubs hard against the current of the culture, then we will suffer. And he modeled that for us so clearly in Acts chapter 16. This week, he models for us, what does it begin to look like? And this is the question that is begged uh, for us to answer in Acts chapter 17 is what does it look like to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the excellencies of the one true God in a godless city? In a godless city that is centered on intellectualism and idolatry. That's the question that we have to think about as we enter into Acts chapter 17. Now let me get you up to speed with what happened and what we couldn't read and teach on. Hope you're reading along in Acts with us. Uh, if, you're, if you're only picking up on Sundays, you're missing gaps because we're not teaching every single passage. So where we left off last week is Paul and Silas and Timothy were in Philippi. Two stories in Acts chapter 16 that I didn't really get to dive into that are just amazing was the conversion of Lydia, a prominent wealthy businesswoman that Paul encounters there outside of Philippi shares the gospel with her. She becomes a believer. She's the first believer that we know of in Philippi, one through which he began to build the church. Then he gets arrested. He and Silas are thrown in prison. You get this incredible story of them singing uh, hymns in the darkness around midnight. And in chains, God sends an earthquake and the chains fell off, fall off and they go free. And the jailer, the Philippian jailer is about to turn the sword in on himself because he knows that's his fate now that the prisoners have escaped. And Paul stops him and he says, no brother, do not do that. And he shares the gospel with him and the Philippian jailer becomes a Christian and all of his household is baptized. And we have the beginnings of the church of Philippi so that when Paul writes Philippians, this is who he's writing to. Then he moves from Philippi to Thessalonica. Again, we have two letters preserved from Paul to the Thessalonians. But it didn't go that well for Paul in Thessalonica. He goes to the synagogue as was his custom. He would always start with the Jews in the synagogue, open the Old Testament scriptures and help them see that it's always been pointing to Jesus. And so he goes to Thessalonica and he does this and the Jews do not respond well. Some believe, but most of them try to kill him. And they run him out of the city. And so he escapes to a nearby town called Berea. In Berea, they're receiving it. The Jews there at the synagogue are receiving uh, the message of the gospel a little more favorably. But the Thessalonian, uh, Thessalonian Jews, that's a mouthful, are so ticked off at Paul that they come to Berea and run him out of Berea as well. Things are so chaotic that Timothy and Silas stay in Berea, and Paul is kind of escorted out secretly and put on a ship to go down the coast 300 miles away to Athens. When he gets to Athens, he sends word back up by way of letter and says, please tell Silas and Timothy to join me soon, to come to Athens. Meanwhile, he walks around Athens studying, watching, observing. He's a student of the city. Now, unlike me, 
in New York, the first several times I went. I'm just in awe of what I'm seeing that I'm not seeing with spiritual eyes. He's not in awe. He could have been in awe of all the marble and all the gold and all the silver and all the, all the ways in which Athens was the preeminent city of ancient Greece. But he's not. He's seeing with keen spiritual eyes. Let's pick up in verse 16. And we'll notice what he sees and what he observes. Now, while Paul was, right, uh, was waiting for them at Athens, Saul, uh, Silas and, and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, I'll make a few comments along the way. Let me, this is important. Provoked. That word in the Greek is not just like, hey, I'm a little perturbed by this. That is a heavy, strong word that's getting at what I was trying to say earlier, which is that spiritual urge, that holy discontentment, that this is not okay. That's what's getting at. He's walking around this city and he's seeing all that he's seeing. And within him is this spirit fueled discontentment. And he's provoked why? Because he's this, he sees a city that is, in, in my translation, probably yours here says full of idols. It's a little bit benign in that description. Because that word is really getting at a reality that's more giving you a word picture of submersion. That it's covered. That it is swamped in idols. That you cannot turn around and look in any direction and not see an idol to a God. That's what he's seeing. So what did he do? Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue. Again, he always goes to the synagogue first, opens the scriptures. He says in his writings, the gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So he goes and reasons with the Jews and the devout persons. Those are those who have believed upon Yahweh, the God of Israel, but are not Jewish, Gentile, God-fearing people. And then he went into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, this tells us that he, he got no traction in the synagogue. So he went quickly to the marketplace. The marketplace was the hub of the city. It was where all the transaction and business went on. And it was where philosophers would gather to argue, to share their ideas of life and meaning and purpose why do we exist? So on and so forth. So it makes sense that as he goes to the marketplace to be a street preacher, to proclaim the gospel, that he quickly engages with some of these philosophers. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. They'd never heard it before. And they took hold of him. That's not in a bad way. They didn't arrest him, but they were curious. So they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, you've probably heard of this. Now don't think, yes, there was a structure called the Areopagus where in ancient Greece, this supreme council would rule from deciding what they would believe as, a, as Greek mythologists, as people who believed in all these Greek gods. And it was on Mars Hill, and it would have still been standing in that day. But by the time Paul was there, that council had lost its governmental power and was more just a council that would hear different things and, yes, give judgment on them, but there was no ruling power behind it. But still, in ancient Greece, 
In first century Greece, still the most prominent religious council in all of Greece. Paul gets an unbelievable invitation here. Come to the Areopagus. Now, that, that meant come to the council. Probably didn't go up on Mars Hill, but probably in the marketplace, they, that's where they would gather. And they said, come share with our highest of council what you're talking about. They basically say, come share this gospel with us. So Paul, this is what they say. May we know, verse 19, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, of course, uh, business was happening. It didn't mean that that's all they did, but this is just a little bit of a, uh, of a way of saying that they were consumed with philosophical, intellectual reasoning. This is where they got their clout. This is where you got stance and reputation in the Athenian culture. So they invite Paul into this. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, in the midst of the council, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, or in ignorance, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, before we get into what Paul actually begins to say, it's important to understand who are these two people groups? Who are the Epicureans and who are the Stoics and what was the nature of, of their belief system? Quickly, the Epicureans were a people, uh, a group of philosophers who had been around for a couple hundred years by this time and they believed that everything came together by chance. They believed in the gods, the Greek gods, but they, they thought that the gods were so distant that they would have nothing to do with human, affair, with human affairs. And they believed that everything uh, just kind of came together. It was the Big Bang Theory before we knew what the Big Bang Theory was. This was the Epicureans. That it just happened, that matter and atoms came together. They also believed that there was nothing after death. There was no life after death. There was no judgment after death. And so, as you can imagine, naturally, their main emphasis was live to the fullest now. Seek the highest pleasures. Seek all that this life can give you. Because what matters is what matters right now in the here and now. And the way this would be expressed the most by the Epicurean philosophers was avoid pain at all cost. Fill your life with the greatest of pleasures. If you're in pain, then you're doing something wrong. Now, the Stoic philosophers were almost the exact opposite. They did believe in a supreme being, but it was kind of convoluted because they were also, also pantheistic. So they believed in all the gods, but they did think that there was this world soul, this higher being. But they were fatalists. Fatalism, meaning that whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen and there's nothing you can do to change it, to stop it, to change course in any shape, form, or fashion. They also believed, quite opposite of the Epicureans, that life was gonna be filled with pain and you cannot avoid it. And so embrace it, surrender to it. And in a weird way, they kind of made pain their God. So these are the two groups that Paul is speaking to. And I want you to watch, when you think about what does it look like to proclaim the excellencies of God to a godless people 
who are centered on intellectualism and idolatry, what does it begin to look like? Paul's gonna model for us the way in which he pressed in the excellencies of God with these people. And it's pretty awesome. Watch what he does. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Do you see what he's already doing with the, with Epicureans? They're going, hey, look, man, this is all by chance anyway. I mean, matter kind of just came together. And he says, no, 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 there's a creator God. He created it all and he sustains it all. Listen to what he says next. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is the creator God and he is the God who sustains you. This is not by chance. There is a purposeful God who created. There is a purposeful God who sustains your very breath that you just took. Not only that, verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So he's now pressing into, he's not just a creator sustainer God, but he's also a personal God who made you in his image. Did you actually have identity in him? And that this God has purposed your whole life, not fatalistically, not, not, listen, Stoics, not so that you can just sit back and go, look, whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen, but this creator God is a personal God who is, by the way, and this is good news for you, in control of all things. Because what kind of God do you wanna serve who is not powerful enough to sovereignly reign? And so he continues to press in. Then he says, verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might, might feel their way toward him and find him. This is language that is very similar to Romans chapter one, where Paul is laying out that no man is without excuse. Then in what has been created, it is evident that there is this creator God and that in all the ways in which we try to find him, we actually end up expressing it in all the wrong ways. I love the way that Jaron Bars uh, expresses this time and again. He says that uh, in all throughout the Bible, and we see it right here, we see echoes of Eden. Echoes of Eden. What happened at Eden? Well, it was Adam and Eve trying to express the ways in which they wanted to, to be religious. But it became very quickly self-centered. It was instead of all of my existence is to, is to the one true God, it became all of my existence is to ways in which I try to be God. But I sense deep within me, I feel deep within my being that this whole religion thing, this whole worship thing has substance to it, but it's so convoluted because of sin. And it's so messed up. And so Barr says this, what happens is you get... As, as displayed throughout all humanity, throughout all history, here's what you get. You get unconscious reflections of the true reality expressed in the wrong context. Unconscious reflections of the true reality but expressed in the wrong context. And this is what's happening in Athens. Paul's looking around and he's going, look, you're a religious people. You, you know that this deep thing within you that says worship Worship something. You feel it when you go to a football game. You worship. 
You feel it when you stand on the, on the cusp of, Grand Can- of the Grand Canyon. You worship. Why is that in there? Because that's there as an image bearer of God, but then you express it in all the ways that aren't to the true reality, God himself. This is the curse. This is part of the curse being lived out with mankind. And he says, so we grapple and we search and we try to find him. And then, listen to this, this is so cool. So he's basically saying here, by the way, Luke is summarizing what Paul said. He, he gave more, more than likely a much longer speech. But what he's saying is he's saying, look, hey, Epicureans, that you think God is so distant, you grapple for him, you reach for him, and then you conclude that these gods are so distant that they would not be involved in human affairs End of verse 27, yet he is actually not far. He's not far from each one of us. And then watch what he does. Now this next part, I want you to pay attention to. This is really important. In Acts chapter two, Peter is preaching to a Jewish, now they're coming from all over the place, but they're Jews. At the day of Pentecost, he preaches the gospel to a Jewish crowd. And what does he do? Well, he uses what would be natural to their context. He uses the Old Testament scriptures. He quotes a lot of Old Testament scripture to show it's Jesus. He's the long-awaited Messiah. Well, now Paul, here we are, same type context, preaching to a people that need to hear the gospel. They don't know the scriptures. So what does he do? He takes two of their poets, Greek poets, and he quotes them. Look at what he says. He says, in him, we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He's quoting Epimenides, who he also quotes in Titus. And he's quoting, you may have a note at the bottom of your Bible, Eratus. These Greek philosophical poets. Do you know who they're talking about? They're talking about Zeus. They're saying, when they wrote it originally, in Zeus we live and move and have our being, and for we are indeed Zeus's offspring. And Paul is saying, look, remember, unconscious reflections that get expressed in these uh, ways that are out of bounds of the true reality, that's what you're doing with Zeus. It's there, and I'm here to tell you, this unknown God, this is the one, this is the one, the offspring of who you are. You're not the offspring of Zeus. You don't live and move and have your being in Zeus. It's in the God of the universe. It's in Yahweh and his son, Jesus. Now, you may know the rest of this. I'm going to read it here in just a moment. And you may go, well, where does Paul ever talk about Jesus in this text? He does. Again, Luke is giving us a synopsis, but he's going to talk about the resurrection So we know that you can't talk about the resurrection without talking about the crucifixion. So we know that he does. And he's pressing in that there is this son of God who is also the one true God. God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And he's revealing this God to these people within their context. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, meaning made in his image, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. 
He talked about the first Adam a moment ago. Now he's talking about the second Adam, Jesus, the one whom he appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now it was at this point that probably many in the crowd laughed because the very next verse, it says, now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, third century historian claimed that Dionysius was the first bishop of Athens. And a woman named Damaris, only time she's mentioned in the scripture, and others with them. Quick little side note here. Luke goes to great measure. And this is a different sermon for a different day that hopefully we can preach soon. In Acts chapter 15, 16, and 17, Luke goes to great lengths to make sure that we know that in every place that Paul goes, women are coming to faith. He says it every single time. Often with this, this uh, disclaimer, women of high standing believing upon Jesus. Why would he do that? He, in a culture that only honors men, Christianity stood out as the only one that honored women. The only one. Think about this. Again, I don't want to get too far into this because this is going to, but who came to the tomb first? It was women. Who did he start the church of Philippi with? It's a woman. There's significance to the identity that God speaks not only into men, but to women in the way that he's forming his church in those early years. Here's where I want us to land today. I wanna to leave time for us to take the table together. What do we do with all this? What we do is this. We begin to get a picture from this text what it looks like to proclaim the excellencies of God in a godless context. What we need to do, what the church needs to do, if you're a follower of Christ, it means several things. It means one, we're a student of where we live, making spiritual, keen spiritual observations that fuel within us spiritual urges to engage in a gracious way with those around us. But it also means this, how are we pressing the gospel in? Uh, for the better half, latter half of the 20th century, most of the church, the evangelical church in America, proclaimed a two-pillar gospel. It's not an insufficient gospel, and God used it to bring many, countless, millions to faith. It's great. But it was simply basically this. Man is sinful. You need a redeemer. Jesus is the redeemer. It's great. But in a in a growing context that is increasingly godless and biblically illiterate. What does that really mean? We got a lot of Epicureans among us who think that this all happened by chance. So if you start with, hey, you're a sinner and you need a savior, you've already lost them. They're like, oh, okay. But what if we moved in like Paul moved in and you start with, there is a creator and you, I know you can disagree with that, but let me just begin to press in with you why that is such good news. 
And so we want to proclaim, we want to be robust in our gospel proclamation. That as we proclaim the gospel, we're actually proclaiming five pillars of the gospel. The first one is that there is a God and he is the the creator and sustainer of all things, just like Paul did with the Athenians. He's the creator and the sustainer. Secondly, we move to that second pillar, which is, and man rejected, in our sin, we rejected this God, this creator, and said, I am God in essence. Thirdly, yes, Jesus, Christ, the son of God who redeems, who redeems sinners, who rejected a holy God. But this fourth and fifth pillar, we have to press in with in the context that we find us in, in the cities where we live. We have to press in that there's also this Jesus, the son of God, who begins to restore. He restores. Yes, first, inwardly, he restores, but it's not just this individual salvation thing that through us individually and collectively, we move out into the places that he's placed us and we bring the restoring work of the kingdom of God to bear in the places where we live. Friends, listen, we missed this for most of the 20th century. The evangelical conservative church taught the Bible in such a way to where it was inviting people into this powerful, profound individual salvation, which we want to always and will continue to proclaim, but then it had no impact on the world around us because what was it? It was individual salvation for the sake of escapism. Get me out of the world. Move me out. And I'll just wait for heaven. What does the gospel say? The five pillar gospel says, no, no, no. According to the scriptures, what what God is saying is that he redeems people individually so that he then fills them in such a powerful way that you say, put me in. Move me into the city. Move me into the neighborhood. Move me into the places where it's filled with Epicureans and Stoics and use me to be the light of the kingdom of God, both in what I say and in what I do to where this whole salvation of Jesus thing is not just an individual reality, but a corporate restoration of all things as a picture of what's to come. Because what's coming? What's coming is that Jesus is gonna come again and he's gonna judge all things and he's gonna make all things new. It's completion. And so his church is in the business of bringing that restoring work in the hearts of his people and through them into the places where we live for his glory. If we just say, hey, you're a sinner and you need Jesus, that's true. It's absolutely true, but it is increasingly falling on deaf ears from a church that says, uh, from, as they hear it from a church and wanna go, well, okay, I hear you. But is there more? And the answer is yes. Jesus came to transform all things. Are we pressing that gospel in in the cities where we live? It starts with neighbors. It's not like some big, huge city strategy. It's just man next door. Am I proclaiming the excellencies of God to my neighbor? I wanna go back to something I said at the beginning. 
I said, you know, we are a people who often are too busy or too distracted or both to look with spiritual eyes and to move out with spiritual urge. As one commentator put it, here's why. We don't say what Paul said because we don't feel what Paul felt. As Paul was walking around Athens, man, he felt the discontentment, the holy discontentment. Do you feel it? Or do we get swept up into the idols of our city with everyone else? And as a result, we don't have holy discontentment. Let's be a church. Let's be a church that lives out this five pillar gospel with keen spiritual eyesight and with strong spiritual urge and discontentment that God would do in and through us what only he can do. Let's be that church. Father, we thank you. Would you make us that? Would you make us a people who long for your kingdom to come in powerful ways in us and through us? First and foremost, God, we do. We pray that you would rescue the dying among us, the spiritually dead that need to be awakened by the truth of the gospel of grace in their lives. And as you rescue more and more from the tyranny of sin, would you mobilize your church to be just an unbelievable movement of your grace, of your love, of your power in the city among us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.